You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported. Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Cade Young. And I'm Noelle Herhusky-Schneider. This is the WFHB Local News for Wednesday, January 4th, 2022. We can then look at the other two sections with regards to the noise. This was unreasonable noise by statute. Later in the program, the Bloomington Board of Public Works unanimously denied an appeal for a noise violation at a property on Washington Street. More in the bottom half of the program. Also coming up in the next half hour, hostage video on Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on WFHB. But first, your local headlines. At the Monroe County Public Library Board of Trustees meeting, Director Greer Carson gave his monthly report. So as always, I'd like to share a few highlights very quickly. Uh, the Bacon Kits launched in November. This collection of things, part of our Library of Things collection, was the winning proposal for this year's Library Innovation Grant, or what we used to call the Pioneer Grant. Our team behind the collection will be sharing some information and community feedback and some anecdotal experiences with you all at an early 2023 board meeting, but we're glad that that's out there now. We are now partnering with the Indiana Bar Foundation to provide a self-service legal help kiosk here at the downtown library. It's actually on the second floor, right as you get up the stairs and turn to the right. Focuses on providing resources and documents supporting those facing housing instability, but there will be updates to the machine and its system in the near future. We are one of the first organizations in Indiana to provide this for our community, and Indiana is actually one of the few states in the nation doing it. As usual, we have some heartwarming experiences and quotes from our vital patrons. And because I know there was a question last month uh, regarding the number of uh, vital volunteers in our wait list, uh, we touched base with our vital team and uh, got some responses to that question. So we actually don't have a lack of volunteers for vital at the moment. Rather, we're in the middle of rebuilding the vital volunteer infrastructure, specifically administrative systems in our training program. And this is to be more effectively meeting the needs of the adults uh, learning English as a new language and adults with literacy challenges. And this has a necessary impact on our wait list right now. We're adapting to the emerging needs of the populations. We're working to build training programs that address the current priorities of digital literacy skills and English for beginner and pre-beginner learners. And we're working closely with the Bloomington and Indianapolis-based Exodus education staff. Our partnership with Broadview Learning Center continues to thrive, and we're exploring revisiting the Advocacy Council previously in place, and this was pre-COVID, which is a quarterly meeting of local adult education representatives in order to discuss discuss opportunities and needs and resources. And the groundwork for all of this will be in January. As we're rebuilding our volunteer core uh, for tutoring and the programs which manage it, we are also providing supplemental learning opportunities in the form of literacy kits and promoting self-paced resources. And as always, the vital e-learning library link on our website is an excellent place for people to start who want to learn and practice at home, even if they're on our wait list. So thank you for that good question. 
Uh, we are adding a new outreach van stop starting in January. This is for the new Autumn Park Senior Living Facility on the west side of Ellettsville. Teen Services conducted a great historical fiction assignment with our friends at the Project School. Those are my highlights. Happy to answer any questions. Board member and secretary Carrie Asari remarked that the library is hosting a lot of additional services. Carson responded that the 21st Century Library has a unique role to fill. I just think it's noteworthy. We're having medical things here. We're having legal things here. I mean, this is an all-service point. That's right, yeah. <laughs> uh, sort of like the journey of the 21st Century Public Library is to figure out what is it that we can do that we're not doing, and does it fit within our workflow somehow? And if it does, we try to pursue it, so yeah. Carson also updated the board on the construction of the Southwest Branch and shared that there has been some public concern about all the construction going on around Gordon Pike. Okay, the drywall is up throughout the building. Uh, the finishing for the drywall will begin next week, but as you walk into the building, you can actually see the rooms taking shape. It's very exciting. Furniture has been ordered, shelving is soon to be ordered, and our opening day collection delivery dates are being set this week. We're probably expecting those boxes of books and everything else the very beginning of April. Electrical, water, and gas installation is still, still in progress on the site. Uh, there's been a little confusion out there in our community as to what aspect of the Gordon Pike disruption is directly connected to our branch construction project uh, versus the county's Gordon Pike expansion project. I've had some good conversations with our soon-to-be neighbors on Gordon Pike and the surrounding neighborhoods, and we've also reached out to local media to clarify some of this. But it's understandable that when you have two big projects like this coinciding, that people are going to assume it's all part of one big deal, and somebody steps on your property and cuts down a tree, it's because the library is building a branch, which is not quite true. Um, so it's a, good, it's a good community outreach opportunity there. We will be posting for Southwest Branch Library positions beginning in January with the branch manager position, followed by the other positions probably in February. And we are hoping to schedule some VIP tours for our staff, for you all on the board, for our Friends of the Library board members, and others in February. That seems to be a good time to get everybody out there and see what the building is pretty much going to look like. Next, Finance Officer Gary Letelier gave a budget update. He informed the board that the Department of Local Government Finance turned down the 2023 budget and explained how that would affect the library services. So the Department of Local Government Finance will not allow us to make a final budget adjustment of $1,800, and they are rejecting the budget we submitted for 2023. So changes will be made to the library budget worksheets going forward so that adjustments made by the DLGF after the budget is adopted are included in the maximum budget spending calculation. I've looked at how the penalty on the tax levy will impact the library. Now that we know what the total operating spending is for the first 11 months of 2022, we can project the estimated operating fund surplus for 2022. For 2022, I'm projecting an operating surplus of at least $800,000. The 2022 operating surplus will cover the budget penalty 
um, and we will have surplus funds remaining that can be added to the rainy day fund. The estimate for the addition to the rainy day fund is about $280,000, which can serve as cushion during the completion of the branch construction project. The DLGF decision to reject the 2023 budget will not impact operational plans for 2023 related to completing and staffing the new branch, and it will not reduce any other planned library services. For the long term, how will it impact the library? When we do the calculation for the 2024 maximum levy for the library, the starting point will be the normal maximum levy for 2023 rather than the lower amount based on the previous year levy. So looking at 2024, if we assume that the growth quotient for 2024 is 4%, it would mean the revenue from the operating fund tax levy would increase by $814,000 from 2023 to 2024. So we will need to do an additional appropriation in early 2022 in order to increase the spending budget from the 2022 levels to the 2023 levels. We'll also be doing an additional appropriation at the same time so that we can get approval to spend the funds that we have carried over for the completion of the branch project. Those funds are in the rainy day fund. So long-term, we'll be looking at the next three years leading up to the renewal of the bond that will be paid off in 2027. We'll be looking at operating surplus funds that can be built up in that time. And we'll be looking at capacity for making future bond payments and we'll be looking at options for future library service improvements. Asari asked if there was any reason they turned down the budget. Letelier said that the budget they submitted increased from 2022 to 2023, and the increase exceeded the maximum growth quotient the state of Indiana set. Yes, uh, because the, uh, the budget that we submitted the, the maximum spending budget, the, the calculation I did was $1,800 over the, the increase that is allowed by the growth quotient. And so that is, that's the reason. The board approved the board meeting calendar and the holiday schedule. Board member Nichelle Whitney Wash asked how many days off are chosen. Carson explained that every year they get to decide as a board. He said they want to discuss more about days off for the holidays. Wash said that she was glad they would be discussing how to go about including the federal holiday, Juneteenth. We do this every year in December. We can kind of move things around if we want to in terms of staff day or anything like that. Um, 
Holidays, though, federal holidays is the thing that we want to talk more about uh, among staff. There are some ideas we have for adopting a new closed holiday and whether or not that means swapping with an existing one or simply adding it to our list. It's a bigger conversation we'd like to have internally before we propose that. So um, we're holding off on that one for, for next year. But these have been kind of in place for, for quite a while. Uh, we tend to just carry them over from year after year. It's good to know that you all are having internal conversations because I know with Juneteenth now yep. being a federally recognized holiday, people are having to decide how do they recognize that as companies and organizations. That's the very thing that we yeah. need to talk about. Okay, uh, good stuff. Because yeah. you know it, it would be simple enough to say you know it's been a federal holiday for you know since what twenty one. Mm-hmm. So let's adopt that. But then the question becomes, do we just add another closed day mm-hmm. because we believe that we should have that day off or do we swap it with something else? And when you start talking about swapping it with something else, then everybody's mm-hmm. got a lot of opinions. Mm-hmm. Um, so we need to have a broader conversation about that before we propose a change. The next Monroe County Public Library Board of Trustees meeting will be held on January 18th. At the Bloomington Utility Service Board meeting on January 3rd, Utilities Engineer Phil Peden asked the board to approve a community development block grant from the Housing and Neighborhood Development Department. Uh, good evening, Phil Peden, Engineering Department. Uh, I think this is one of those contracts that you like to see. It's money we, we are receiving, uh, $110,000, and it's toward stormwater improvements in community areas where we've found uh, air, uh, flooding issues that we were trying to uh, Resolve with uh, some new bioretention ponds, which is uh, kind of a fancy word for a green infrastructure detention pond. It holds the water back and it filters some, some through the soil. Board member Amanda Burnham asked where the near west side Waterman neighborhood is located. Peden responded. Yeah, so Waterman's neighborhood is west of Adams and it's between Kleindorfers and J.B. Salvage. That's easy enough. Kind of okay. where the railroad tracks are through that section. Burnham also asked if the work there had already been done. Peden explained that they have only done the design work for it so far, but they have not started any construction, which is what the grant will cover. No, only the design work is complete at this point, and we covered that cost. We hired engineers to complete that, and then we'll use the grant to do the construction. Great. Board member Kirk White asked for clarification about whether or not the grant would pay for the project up front or if they would be reimbursed for it. Peden said they will be reimbursed. The board approved the grant unanimously. The next Utility Service Board meeting will be held on January 17th. During the January 3rd meeting of the Bloomington Board of Public Works, the board heard an appeal of a noise violation. City Attorney Chris Wheeler explained the alleged violation Good afternoon or good evening. This is Chris Wheeler with City Legal. I have with me Officer Thomas Cruzman, uh, who was the issuing officer on the notice of violation or the ticket, if you will. Uh, the staff report that I presented to the board for consideration outlines what the controlling ordinances are, the language in those controlling ordinances identifying most particularly in this case, that any sound that is clearly audible to a person with normal hearing from any place other than the premises from which the source of the sound is located, when the sound occurs between the hours of 9 p.m. and 7 a.m., is prima facie evidence of a violation of this section, and that is section uh, 14.09.030, 
C4. Uh, when that type of event occurs, uh, all we need to do is show from the officer who issued the ticket that uh, he has normal hearing, that he wasn't on the property and could hear the noise, and that it occurred between 9 p.m. and 7 a.m. Uh, on any given day. Bloomington police officer Thomas Cruzman gave his testimony about responding to the noise violation. Um, on the evening of August 20th, uh, going into the 21st, officers, we had received upwards of four to five calls from different parties about noise violations in the 1300 block of North Washington Street. Uh, upon arriving there, one of our other officers encountered a large party at 1320 North Washington Street and also 1319 North Washington Street. The other officer issued a noise violation to 1320. After we had handled that one, there was still loud amplified music large amount of people coming from 1319 North Washington Street as well. Um, so I had proceeded over to that address where I had met with the party that was issued the ticket, in this case, uh, Brandon Schirmersheim, um, who identified himself as one of the tenants of the property. He was aware that the party was ongoing and stated they had had a large party the night before as well. So he claimed to be a tenant there. The music was still ongoing. It was a loud amplified system outside of the residence sitting on the porch. Um, we had him shut that music off, and then he was issued the noise citation. Wheeler returned to the podium with the claim that the noise coming from the property was unlawful. He walked through his legal rationale. And so from the officer's statements, uh, we can then look at the other two sections with regards to the noise. This was unreasonable noise by statute. Um, <clears throat> uh, it is unlawful for any person to cause or make any unreasonable noise or to allow any unreasonable noise to be caused or made in or on any real or personal, personal property occupied or controlled by that person. And so these are the other, I think, uh, in, important elements to show uh, that the noise that was being made was unreasonable because it was being made at that time of night and you could hear it off property, that makes it unreasonable. And it was being made or at least allowed to be made by somebody in control of the property, in this case, Brandon Sermersheim. <clears throat> I'd like to address a few other things. The ticket, when it's issued, um, as with a speeding ticket, if anyone's ever had one, does not show an amount on the ticket face because the officer wouldn't know whether there have been priors. And so they don't have the opportunity in the field to uh, make that determination. That determination is made by the administrative arm of that enforcement agency. So they review the record and determine whether or not um, or what the amount of the fine will be. In this department, if you're going to receive a warning, you do not receive a ticket. Uh, if you're going to be issued a fine with a cost associated, you receive a ticket. Uh, in this case, the ticket was issued and the administrative branch of the enforcement agency, the Bloomington Police Department, determined that this was a first offense for Mr. Schirmersheim, and so it was a $50 fine in accordance with our ordinance. Public Works Director Adam Wason asked for clarification on the timeline for the appeal. Wheeler responded. Uh, no, I just wanted to, in our work session earlier, you mentioned that the back of the ticket um, had information on how the 
uh, a person who has issued the ticket should contact the police. Could, could you yes, go through and that? Yes, I can one? go through that. So the back of the ticket discusses what your options are when you receive a ticket, and it gives you seven days to do these things, which is to accept responsibility and go ahead and pay the ticket, which would be to contact the City of Bloomington Police Department and, and have that uh, arranged to make that payment. The other one would be to deny responsibility and appeal that citation to the Board of Public Works, and in either case, you're given seven days to do that. So in this case, I think there were some issues with regards to getting the ticket um, um, sent out for collection. And at that time, Mr. Sermershine uh, realized that he actually owed money and he tried to make an appeal. Um, we are allowing that appeal to go forward, even though by definition of the ordinance, it would have been late. Then appellant Brandon Shermershine was given the opportunity to speak and tell his side of the story. Yeah, so uh, he's definitely right. Uh, first thing I will start out with, um, we did not have a party, not that it matters, but we did not have a party the night before. But uh, regarding the ticket, I guess I don't know if it's just from where, or where, but I did not, couldn't see anything. And then like I said, there's nothing, no $50 uh, amount listed on it. So I kind of assume that there's no ticket. Therefore, that's why it took three months, and then I received that letter in the mail, which is why I was confused that I didn't know there was a ticket in the first place. Board Secretary Elizabeth Karen asked whether or not the appellant was notified of a fine on the day of the citation. Officer Cruzman replied that the appellant was made aware of what to do if he had any questions. The evening in question, when you provided the ticket, was there any verbal conversation about a monetary fine? Uh, it was explained to him, I believe, what the values were, but obviously we didn't know if that was his first fine or not. Um, so usually when I respond, I tell people what the three levels are, the 50, the 100, then the 500 for subsequent tickets within the calendar year. So it was explained, it's recorded on the body camera footage that this is a ticket. This is how you pay said ticket or contest said ticket if you wish, um, which was actually signed as well by Mr. Shermersheim. So um, he was made aware of how to go about taking care of that ticket if he had any questions. Board President Kyla Cox Deckard asked whether the log of events the board received for the incident listed the details of the complaints for the property in question or if another property received complaints as well. Cruzman clarified that a neighboring property also received complaints from the public. We received like the log of um, conversation that was happening that evening. Uh, was all of that log related to this property? There was a mention of like fireworks and some other things in addition. And I wasn't sure, I, was, I wasn't clear on whether that content was all related to the same property or if, or if there was maybe some chatter about a couple different incidents happening. There, there were two properties at that time. The other one that I had referenced earlier, which was 1320 North Washington and then 1319. Um, they sit directly across from one another. So there were large amounts of people coming from 1320, large amounts of people coming from 1319. Um, the fireworks and stuff that was referenced was primarily from 1320. So not in this case. Um, the uh, noise violation that was issued to 1319 to Mr. Shermersheim was for the loud music, loud party specifically, not the fireworks. Okay. Thank you. The three-person board unanimously denied the appeal for a noise violation.
The Bloomington Board of Public Works will meet again on January 17th. Up next, hostage video on Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on WFHB. We turn to host and producer Richard Fish for more. Welcome to Better Beware. Here's your consumer watchdog from WFHB Community Radio with the latest information and helpful hints designed to keep your head out of the clouds, your feet on the ground, and your money in your pocket. Social media is a term that covers a lot of ground these days. It refers to internet communications, of course, and ways for people to connect with each other. Lots of ways. Blogs like Huffington Post, business sites like LinkedIn, networking sites like Facebook or Instagram, gaming sites, photo and video sharing sites, virtual worlds. They can be a lot of fun. But the scammers are out there too, and they can be dangerous. A woman in Indianapolis recently got taken for 500 bucks because she didn't realize who she was talking to. She's actually experienced and pretty savvy, so when she got a message on Instagram, a friend request from a woman she was already friends with, she contacted the woman, who messaged back an apology saying her account had been hacked. But then the friend went on to talk about making a lot of money investing in Bitcoin, saying she'd invested with a broker named David. The friend said it was completely legitimate and even sent a picture of a lot of money sitting in her lap, although the picture didn't show her face. Well, the Indianapolis lady got in touch with David, who promised a $5,000 return for a $500 investment. Now, this should have set off alarm bells in the victim's mind, but she was so sure she could trust her friend that she went ahead and sent the 500 bucks. That's when the scam got kicked up a notch. David held her money hostage. He told her she wouldn't get her money until she made a video recommending him and the Bitcoin investment. Being 500 smackers in the hole and still hoping for the 5,000, the lady in Indy did what he asked. In the video, she said, it's real, it's legit, and you should invest too. She sent it off to David and waited for her money. Of course, it never came. She didn't know who she was really talking to because her friend's account really had been hacked, and David or an accomplice carried on the conversation. The poor woman had been hornswoggled into paying $500 for the dubious privilege of helping the scammer swindle more people. Even worse, she started getting threatening phone calls demanding that she invest more, and her Instagram account was flooded with messages from scammers. In 2021, 95,000 people reported losing nearly $800 million to scams on social media, and such losses have ballooned 800% in just five years. Today, social media scams are more profitable for the con artists than any other means they have of reaching out and putting the touch on their victims. 
When anyone starts talking money on social media, you need to be sure you know who you're talking to. And remember, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. I'm Richard Fish for WFHB News and Public Affairs. Better Beware comes to you from WFHB Bloomington, Indiana. Find all our episodes at WFHB.org. If you can help put the kibosh on a con, email beware at WFHB.org. Remember, swindlers never give a sucker an even break. Support for the WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Noel Herhusky Schneider and myself in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Better Beware is produced by Richard Fish. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Noel Herhusky Schneider. And I'm Cade Young. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast as well as all other WFHB news programming online at wfhb.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters WFHB wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for Hearabouts, Asian American Midwest Radio, coming up next on WFHB. WFHB.